Hello, and welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Jeff Young. This week, we have a guest we're excited about, but first, we got a program note, um, and I got to say, I got mixed, mixed feelings about this. Um, I'm here with Jenny Abamu, um, but this is her last time co-hosting the podcast. Uh, Jenny, what's going on? Yes, listeners, it's my last time on the Ed Surge On Air podcast, and that is sad. But the exciting news is I'll be joining NPR member station WAMU, where I'll be reporting on education in the region. So yes, you can still listen to my voice on air or online, and you'll probably end up hearing a lot more of it. So more Jenny, but, but we are very sad to see you go, Jenny, but we're excited for this, for you and this new role. So um, we'll be watching, watching your stuff, but you're not gone yet. You're still here for, for this week. And who do you have for your, your final uh, interview for us? So this one's really exciting. I got Caroline Hill. Now, if you all have not heard Caroline Hill speak, she's a bit of a firecracker. I saw her speak before at the Blended Learning Conference in Rhode Island and also at Ina Cole in Florida. She's been a DC educator for years, but is embarking on this new venture where she's creating this accelerator with the goal of scaling equity. Wait, so so it's kind of like using this language from Silicon Valley, but to apply it to social justice. Exactly, which is really, really unique. I haven't heard this before. So what she hopes to do is basically combine the startup mentality within the ed tech world and with social justice issues in a really unique way. So we'll hear about her plans, how she actually plans to do that, what what does that mean, and how that might impact teaching and learning for educators who go through her accelerator in the future. We'll have that conversation right after this. Welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. Yeah, thank you so much, Jenny, for having me. It is such a pleasure. Um, I'm glad that you were able to be get on so quickly because I'm really excited. I got your, I, I got an email and I opened it up and I saw that you were starting a new accelerator and I was like, oh, this sounds different. And I was really interested in having you tell our audience about what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. So thank you so much first for the platform and the opportunity. Um, So the new venture is called the 228 Accelerator. Um, And the name was really conceived when I realized, and I I read this report called The Ever-Growing Gap, and it said that the average Black family would take 225 years to achieve wealth parity with white families. And and for Latinx families, it'd be 84 years. And, And this is just an indicator of the injustice that's experienced by the most marginalized and excluded in our communities and our society. So, you know, one of, I mean, I've been in education um, in D.C. uh, for the past 20 years um, and have seen like this idea of equity gain more and more momentum. But, you know, just knowing that that is still an indicator and that that the 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 number and and the number of years that it would take is 228, 228, it's like, you know what, we're still in startup mode. We need to think about ways to accelerate um, this notion of equity throughout our entire school system. and, and the way that we think and design educational experiences for students. So, so the whole goal of the organization is to think about how do we take our mindsets and our beliefs about equity and then scale them so that we can move towards, uh, we can accelerate our progress to more civil and just society. 
It sounds interesting, the idea of scaling equity. I was like, that sounds interesting, but on a practical level, how does that work? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. So my, my hunch is, and I'm going to say hunch very carefully, because we haven't figured this out as a society in a country, because if we had, we wouldn't need organizations like this. So my hunch is that it's our individual interactions, like our relationships with each other, that kind of plant the seed for inequity to, um, to, to create and to fester. So if we can look at the relationships between students and the relationships between teachers and the relationships between teachers and students and students and their and content and redesign them towards the desired outcomes, right? Codify that and then figure out how to make that into scalable nuggets, policies, practices, models, we, we stand a chance of being able to spread and having more equitable institutions. Um, now, of course, we have to deal with the, with the challenge that most of our schools are segregated, right? So, so we then have to think about if we really want a true and just society, then how do we bring students across lines of racial difference, students across lines of economic and social difference? How do we bring them together? How do we bring those communities together to then create something more powerful than currently exists? Than what currently exists. And so when you say redesign relate or design redesign relationships with people, I mean, what's wrong with the relationships that teachers and students have now? So I, I think that we have not, so I think there, there are a couple things. Like we have some indicators about where students are. I, I know that we've had plenty of students that go to school, they get into college, but they don't finish, right? They don't finish college, not because they're not smart enough, they run into these oppressive themes and narratives that, that exist in our society about people of color, about, about women, about uh, people who are, are sexual minorities, about people who have newly immigrated to the country. These are all narratives that are all in our heads that create the conditions for our relationships. So I, I think that it's those, it's those narratives that have to be rewritten. And those narratives are rewritten by people and the relationships they have with each other. Um, so, so that's the nugget that, that I want to start in. Let's, let's think about how do we get people to think differently about each other? Um, and I think schools are the capture point for that because it's the only institution that every child or every person is mandated to, 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 to engage with for at least 16 years of their life. Hmm. So, I, you know, to answer your question, what we say about redesigning relationships is I like to think about it like this. How do we flatten hierarchies in the school without flattening people? Hmm. Like, how, how would we do that? Um, what, are we satisfied with the teacher-student relationship as it is? What if teachers and students co-created content together? What would that look like? Um, and if that's a desired outcome, then let's, let's plan some small tests to see what that looks like in practice. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, and but I'm I have to also ask though. I'm thinking about um, when you say that you know schools are are have had these oppressive narratives. Give for the audience. I mean, what describe an example of that? What does that look like in a classroom? What does it look like? What is what is an oppressive narrative that is in a school look like? People, I don't even think people can identify these things. Yeah, so I, I think they're invisible. So I think it's important to call them out. I, I can tell you a story of my own experience when I was a principal. Right. So when I was a principal, there was a student who um, clearly 
was excluded and marginalized throughout his entire school experience. Um, so much so that he became a victim of police brutality, police violence, right? That happened outside the school. But while he was in the school, we were forcing him to be a part of our world instead of conforming the school experience to his. And what that looked like for his everyday experience was that when he didn't do what we thought was the right thing, he was excluded again and again and again. So much so, it became, school is not the place for me. Um, and I think that happens a lot for students, um, for students, period. Um, and, and I think it has dire consequences when school is the last institution that the child is buying into because other institutions have failed them along the way. Um, I, I think that when we exclude students, when they don't follow our behavior expectations, that's a particular narrative. When we see more black boys suspended um, in a school or, or black girls suspended in a school, that's a particular narrative. I, I went to the, the adjudicated youth center here in our city uh, earlier this year and noted that most of the students in that space were, were black boys. That follows a narrative that we, what we think about students of color, what we think about boys of color, and when they don't necessarily conform to the same uh, standards that, that adults have for them in the building. Um, I, I think we have to think about and figure out ways to, to educate and correct um, without excluding. Because I think it's customary in our culture to exclude when people don't do things that that we agree with, frankly. Mm, very interesting. I mean, I can see teachers, some teachers saying, yes, this is something we need to do. But I could also hear teachers also saying, how am I going to teach my class when I have disruptive kids? Or if I have, how do I deal, like, this sounds rosy in, you know, in theory, but in practice, it's really hard. Yeah, and, and I think, Jenny, that's a really good point. And that's when you get to the practical applications. Like, how do we then do this work? Um, and, and I think educators across, you know, the, the entire spectrum, whether you're a principal or a district administrator or a teacher, we need time and space to think about doing things different. I, I like to say that, we can follow the same scripts that have been passed down from our parents and our society not, does not change, right? We're just following the script. We're following our roles. We're doing our part. If we want to move and accelerate this pace towards a more civil and just society, we actually have to have time that allows us to critically assess and reflect on our, our practice and the impact of our practice on other people and then think about what are all the ways I can do this in a fundamentally different way Right. And then how do I test that in a low stakes, low risk environment um, so that I can ease into a new practice? So, I mean, the headline here is we need space and time to think. And, and I want to create those spaces for educators to do that. thinking. Mm. And so what would your first cohort of people look like? What is it? What is the what does the work actually look like on the ground when people are thinking about uh, do I want to be a part of this accelerator? Do I want to be a part of this group? What, what kind of skills will they be learning and things like that? Well, that's a really good question. So I think first it's uh, learning common language and, 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 and fluency around equity, diversity, and inclusion, right? I, I think we have very different understandings and definitions of privilege and oppression, of racism. These are things that are in our, in our space, but we don't have common language. So first is establishing a common language. 
Um, and then learning some listening structures because that is the first step in establishing relationships. Can we listen to each other? Um, and I think once that foundation is set, it's then moving into thinking about like, what are the core themes that are showing up in my practice and in my school? Um, and then how then do we create another story, if you will, right? So if, um, if a teacher is experiencing or if a leader is experiencing um, the exclusion of some kids and not others, then we, you could say, well, let's rewrite the entire discipline policy. But what we would say is then let's get really close to the students who've been, who, who've been excluded and let's find out more about their experience. And let's work with them to figure out what will work for them. Um, and then over a course of five to six days, walking that educator and that design team, including the student um, and teachers through like, let's figure out what's gonna work. How do we test it with real people, but in an environment, in a context that doesn't threaten the day-to-day? Um, let's see what we learn about that. Let's reflect on how we are changing as we are going through this process. And if we see and like the results, then let's figure out what were the moves that we made. Um, and then let's talk about scaling that once we do some more tests. So it, it, it's, it's like going through a, a cycle of, of action research. That's probably a really close analog, but you're co-creating these experiences um, and you're co-creating the research and the knowledge with the students and with the people that are most affected and most impacted by um, the harm in the school. Part of what you're saying is that you want to dismantle racist structures, right? I mean, this is quite the era <laughs> to take on that to take on that challenge. I mean, I've seen you speak a few times. I've seen I saw you speak in Rhode Island. I also saw you at Inacol. Yeah. And each time you've been bold and you've said, you know, this is these are things that you believe and you want to change and things like that. But there are also quite a few bold voices who might disagree with you. Yeah. And what do you? What is your response to people who might think that your tone is too much for them, or too, or even who might say, "Okay, I don't know if I'm ready for all that you're saying." How do you build a bridge with people when you guys seem to be on two different sides of the bridge? Um, I, I think there, there are two things that come to mind. It's it's one. Um, this is not a time or a moment to be silent. Um. I, I, I definitely believe in, in that. Like, this is not the moment to be silent. And I, I think that different people are in different places uh, when it comes to finding and articulating their voices. I think that there's some common ground that we can all agree on. Um, I think if you ask, you know, everybody, do you want a more civil and just society? I can't imagine someone would say no, right? <laughs> mm. I hope not. Um, but there might be. But I, I think that we want to have to acknowledge that everyone is at different places um, and, and, and also do the work and put the work in in establishing a common baseline understanding of the, the problems or these themes or narratives that keep coming up in our history and why they keep coming up. Um, and I, I think most people don't know the whole story. Like if you, if you ask people, do they know, we, we often are taught, I know what I was taught when I was in high school, I taught the high points of American history, revolution, 
maybe you talked about the Civil War, then you jumped to, um, I think then the class was over. Maybe you touched a little bit about the Progressive Era, but I don't know if we have a common understanding about why we are here, right? Why we are here, why our society it looks the way it does, and why do these themes keep reappearing again and again? Um, so I, I think that one, that the effort has to be made. Um, but I think two, it's also trying to think about like, this is about us being our best selves. Um, and that this work is, is done in partnership. This work is done through relationship. Um, and some people might be ready and some people might not be. Um, it doesn't mean that we don't, we don't give up. It means that we uh, are aware of that, but we keep moving. Um, in the interests of those who don't have voices. Mm. Um, I, I think that this, in my, in my opinion, I've seen a lot of students um, and a lot of families who won't have a voice. Um, so because I do have a, a certain amount of privilege, it's how can I use my voice to, to, to make their worlds um, better and also to make my world better, right? Um, so I, I think that that is always going to be a, a tension, Jenny, like some people might not agree, they might not be there. Um, but, but I think that to do this work really well is to one, acknowledge that um, and, and to support them as best as we can along the way, but, but, not, keep, but not stop with them. We got to keep mm-hmm. moving. Also following up on that kind of that question, uh, I know that a lot of your conversations do talk about, you know, empowering these students, giving them voice uh, to black Latino students, especially those who have been really marginalized. But I also do wonder for also those who are a bit hesitant because they feel threatened by that kind of concept. I've heard people before say things like they wonder where they fit in as a white person or even as an Asian student. We see what's going on in New York City, even with their desegregation uh, debate. Asian students and white students also have a different view on it. And does, and they, some people might see empowering students of color as almost a threat to their own well-being. Yeah. I'm curious uh, for, for those people, how, where do they fit in when you talk about scaling equity? Yeah. So I, I think that it's important at some point that we, we shift our discourse a bit, um, not just talking about, about race. Um, not saying that the race is like the biggest indicator in American context, don't get me wrong, but mm-hmm. it's how do we then start talking about like the relationships between the powerful and the powerless? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that, that everyone um, along some lines of identity have power. And, and most people along some lines of identity don't, unless, you know, you are, you know, one of the generational like rich you know, excuse me, wealthy, white, straight, landowning men who don't have any, I mean, like, and that's a minority, um, especially in the public school sector. Um, so I, I think that if we pivot our conversation and our language to, like, how do we reimagine the relationships between the powerful and the powerless? How do we rethink our relationships um, so that they're not hierarchical all the time? I think that creates entry points for everyone. I think that creates entry points for everyone. I, I've, I've had a couple of moments where we review and, and we go over uh, the 10 oppressive ideas, the 10 ideas that fuel oppression. And, and it talks about you know race and class and um, 
sexual orientation um, and cisgenderism, and it talks about um, whether English is your first or second language, like any spectrum that someone could could have um, or could not have power. And what we find is that oftentimes we spend a lot of time talking about where we don't have power, but and, and but we don't talk about where we do, right? <laughs> and and what do we do when we have when we do have power and privilege? And what's the responsibility when we have power and privilege? Um, and I think when you have power and privilege, you can either um, create more distance between you and other people, or you can create more space, and you can create more space for more voices. Um, and, and I think that is that's that's one of the the lessons that you know my, my work wants to illustrate. Like, what do you do when you have power? There there is a role for you in this, even if you don't have a lot of melanin in your skin. There's a role. Because our, our world um, will be made just when all of us participate and all of our human potential can be developed. So when will your first cohort begin? When will that, what will that look like? Um, not sure. We're still, we, we are, we're probably put the call out um, for, the, the, for the first cohort around September. I've gotten a lot of interest in schools reaching out mm-hmm. and saying that they're super interested. Right now we're doing a lot of work with building the foundations. Mm-hmm. Um, and building a foundation cohort um, and, and with some organizations in New York um, and some other organizations in D.C. Um, but we'll probably put an all call out probably by the end of August or beginning of September for that first cohort um, to start so we can build this work together. And my last thought, what, what, now, that you've, now that you've had you kind of outlined what you want to do. Have you outlined what success will look like for you? When will you, how will you mark success for your organization? That's a really, really good question. So I think um, we, we have some internal metrics and, and some internal tools and assessments that we're using to mark success. Um, and, and one internally is after these interventions and these um, ideas are implemented in the school, how do the relationships change? And how do the relationships between teachers change and between students, uh, between teachers and students change? So we have those metrics. But I think ultimately, it's, it's how, how can we close these gaps that we see? Um, and, and we haven't figured out the best ways to, 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 to measure that. Um, but I, I think ultimately, success is, you know, a more civil and just society. We've got to figure out what that looks like. Um, you know, more, more measurably. Um, but, but that's where we are right now. Fascinating. And if you could leave the audience with one thought, I could be about your accelerator or even just your thoughts or ideas around schooling as an educator, what can they do in the meantime while they just think about the relationships that they have with kids? Sure. Um, I, I think as, as equity is in the common discourse and the common language right now, we have to see all of ourselves, all of us, we all are people with creative authority and we have the power to create different experiences for students and we need to do that thoughtfully and we need to do that responsibly so we can make transformative change um, for, for young people. Thank you so much for joining us on the Ed Surge on Air podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Judy. Listeners, it's been my sincere pleasure being your co-host for the Ed Surge On Air podcast. 
I'm sad to say this is my last one, but you can still catch me on NPR member station WAMU on your radio or online. The show, Ed Surge on Air, this will go on. So stay tuned for next week's episode on the future of education. Thank you.